Welcome to Jewish History Matters. I'm Jason Lustig, and I'm joined today by David Kaufman to talk about Jews and Native peoples in North America. It's the focus of David's recent book titled The Jews Indian, Colonialism, Pluralism, and Belonging in America, which is the jumping-off point for our wide-ranging conversation in this episode into how American Jews imagined Indians in the 19th and 20th centuries, similar to the broad process of how other white settlers created their own imagined versions of Native peoples, and what this means as we try and make sense of American Jewish history and modern Jewish history as a whole, within the wider context of 19th and 20th century politics and cultures. David S. Kaufman, is an associate professor in the Department of History at York University, where he holds the J. Richard Schiff Chair for the Study of Canadian Jewry. He is also the editor-in-chief of Canadian Jewish Studies. I'm so excited to share this conversation, where David and I think critically about the place of American Jews within the process of white settlement in the American context as well as beyond. American Jews and other white or white-passing peoples had complex and changing relations with the natives who they encountered. This is clearly an important issue in general terms, as we can look at the white imagination of the Indian in all sorts of cultural contexts, whether we talk about cowboy and Indian radio and TV programs, or Wild West novels and stories like those of Carl May in German culture and beyond. However, when we look at the context of Jewish history in particular, these issues raise very unsettling questions. In what ways did American Jews seek to differentiate themselves from Native Americans in the 19th and early 20th centuries as they similarly tried to distinguish themselves from African Americans in an effort to cultivate the image of the American Jew as white, so to speak? How did this change later on in the 20th century as Jews became involved in the struggle for Native rights? And what does all of this mean in terms of the broader part that Jews have played in the process of settler colonialism in the U.S. and also around the world. David's book offers a tremendously novel take on modern Jewish history, both in America and also beyond it. He suggests that we look at Jewish life in the 19th and 20th centuries through the lens of colonialism and settler colonialism in particular. I hope that you enjoy our conversation today with David Kaufman about the Jews Indian and about the big-picture issues it raises about American Jewry, American history at large, and modern Jewish history on the largest scale. So hi, David. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Jason. It's really a pleasure uh, to have you uh, join me on, the, you know, on this episode. I really enjoyed reading your book. It's a really exciting set of issues, uh, which we're going to get into. And I think that it might be useful for us to get started with the title which is to say that the book is entitled The Jews Indian. And I think that for a lot of people, that phrase may seem kind of odd. So what is it that you mean by the phrase, quote, the Jews Indian? And what does it represent as you think about American Jewish history? Yeah, I have a colleague at, uh, at York University where I work who saw the title and was really jazzed because she's, she's a Koreanist. And she thought that the book must have been about Native Americans who were slaves to Jews, and that excited her for whatever reason. No, 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 that was not the intention. Anyway, it's, I chose the title. There are two failures, in a sense, in the title. The book is, and the title is meant to speak to 
the content of the book, which is a book about what Jews did with Native Americans, what how they thought about them, how they thought about their interactions with them, how they imagined them. So it's it's Indians, as it were, according to Jews. So I tried to kind of code the grammar in the title. It's a one-way story. It's a story really about Jews, where Jews are the subjects and Indians, in a sense, are the objects. Now, a better book, or perhaps just a different book, or maybe a counterpart follow-up book by another different scholar might be more dialogical, might be, might speak to the way that Native Americans imagined and engaged with Jews, and then it could be Jews and Native Americans. But this possessive S made it, you know, tried to make it clear that that's what the book was about. It was a kind of, it's kind of a one-way street. Yeah, absolutely. I think that one of the things that is important for us to think about here is the broad way in which Native peoples in the U.S., you know, North America, broadly speaking, were like this object that European peoples, you know, Jews included as people who were coming from Europe, were trying to understand and place in their own framework that Europeans coming to the Americas were imagining the natives in different ways. And this goes, you know, from Rousseau all the way to German culture and cowboys and Indians, you know, so to speak. And so I think that you're doing something really interesting by saying that the Jews are also part of this cultural framework of the imagination of the Indian, so to speak. Yeah, they were not only part of the wider Western imagination, which I think is something to say without glossing over too quickly. Like it's kind of important to pause there to say Jews were certainly part of this process and they did bring with them all the ideas and expectations that they shared with other Europeans. But they also, you know, had some unique and original Jewish spins on the process, coming with their own, you know, their own baggage and their own anxieties and their own concerns, which got refracted and reflected in the ways that they thought about Native Americans. And then it's also important to note that they also, that these ideas shaped actual, the actual human interactions that they had with with these um, indigenous people to the to the continent. So these were not just ideas that happened and stayed in the realm of the imagination, but ended up being, you know, very operable, of course, for Jews and for every other segment of the European population. One thing to point out here, which is also significant, is that there's a very specific kind of connection between Jews and the the imagined native person, you know, so to speak, which is to say that many people believed that Native Americans were actually the lost tribes of Israel. And of course, this myth, which has no basis in reality, persisted for quite a long time. And I think you even opened the book by talking about one iteration of this myth. So there's a specific kind of Jewish connection between the Jews and the imagined Native people. Yeah, there are, there are actually many different you know, specific iterations of, of the, you know, what Jews are doing with and what meaning they're making of their encounters and imaginations of these others uh, in America. And yes, the, the Lost Tribes is certainly one of them, but it's not the only one. And as the 19th and 20th century roll along, Jews are bringing all kinds of ideas about their own questions about where they fit in to the idea of America and its racial schema and sense of belonging and religion and all the rest of it, where they're they're sort of taking their own Jewish concerns and overlaying their own interests, investments, and anxieties onto their uh, encounters with the other. 
Yeah, so I think maybe it might be useful for us to step back for a second. I mean, we've just been talking for the past you know minute or two about the imagination of white settlers, Jews included, of Native peoples. Why is it so important for us to understand the ways in which you know Native peoples operated within the imagination of these settlers in comparison or in conversation with the actual reality of settling North America? So why is it important for us to think about whether we're talking about the Jews, Indian, or you know the British people's notion of you know the Indian or whatever, you know, why is it so important for us to understand the ways in which Native peoples were imagined by settlers coming to North America? Scholarship used to take it as a given that they were talking about you know face to face encounters and that they could be transparent about this, and that you know it, everything was obvious and. There was a book that came out in the late 70s by Burkhoffer Jr. called, it was called The White Man's Indian. And it's a book that kind of turned the history of indigenous settler encounters on its head by saying that everything we know about the encounters between newcomers and the original inhabitants tells us something about the newcomers themselves. So it wasn't that it begins with the imagination and it ends in impact, it's that you can read out the impact, you can read out from the actual encounters, what the ideas governing them were in the first place. We learn more about the white man when we look at these encounters than we do about any specific Native American nation or people when we do this kind of encounter history. That was a major breakthrough in the general field. And I suppose my understanding of things is that the imagination and the encounter are really wrapped up together that it's it's almost a little bit of a psychological twist. Uh, one has to be psychoanalytic or at least a little bit attentive to the kinds of projections uh, about who the other is in the imagination of the speaker, even as you study texts that reveal actual face-to-face encounters about business or violence or politics. You can read backwards into, well, who is the subject and how is the subject imagining the object? So that was my approach that I wanted to take to drill down and think about, you know, what these encounters meant for Jews and how they force us to rethink American Jewish history or maybe even Jewish history a little more broadly. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. It reminds me of the ways in which we study anti-Semitism, for instance, in as much as when we look at anti-Semitic texts and rhetoric and so on and so forth, it tells us much more about the anti-Semites than it does about Jews, because it's really about the ways in which anti-Semitic individuals, movements, and so on, imagined Jews to be as opposed to actual reality. I think that you hear, in terms of this broader scholarship on Native peoples in, in the Americas, are engaging with a similar set of issues about how it is that these group of people is being imagined, you know, and that it tells us much more about the people who are coming and persecuting them than it does about them themselves. That's a great example. It's a totally great example. I teach a course on the history of anti-Semitism, and I'm always trying to tell my students we're not, this is, in some sense, it doesn't even belong in a Jewish studies course list. Unless we focus on Jewish responses to anti-Semitism, or the ways that anti-Semitism is internalized, or, or the sort of psychological, social psychological ramifications of anti-Semitism on Jews or their political actions, if we're just studying the anti-Semitic texts and movements and actions and ideas, then we're really studying anti-Semites. So it really should be in anti-Semites studies and not in Jewish studies, because 
they are the subjects. They are the ones creating meaning out of their ideas and engagements with Jews. Before you had mentioned how looking at the encounters between native peoples and white settlers tells you more about the white settlers than about the native peoples themselves. In this context, you know, when you're looking at what you call, quote, the Jews Indian, which it seems to me is a pretty direct reference, you know, or callback to that earlier book about, you know, um, the British Indian, right? In this context, looking at what you call, quote, the Jews Indian, what does that tell us about Jews, you know, in terms of the way in which Jews were imagining native peoples and what they, how they fit into the broader cultural matrix or the broader kind of sense, you know, imagination of what North America was or could be? Well, it tells us a number of things. It tells us that Jews wanted to fit into the mythological architecture of America itself, particularly of the West, and the way that the West created Americans. Jews understood that Native Americans and overcoming Native Americans had a role to play, but also uh, sort of digesting Native Americans, assimilating them into themselves, made Americans Americans. Jews understood this and they participated in it. So it tells us that Jews wanted to be a part of the kind of metaphysics of making Americans. Uh, it also tells us something about the lived lives of many Jews who were not urban dwellers in the cities of the of the coasts or, you know, of the Midwest, but Jews that made their way to smaller towns and all the interesting places in the so-called frontier zones, you know, about what they did and why they did it and where they fit into the uh, kind of racial organization uh, of America and particularly in the West. Uh, and I think it also tells us something about just the mere simple fact that Jews made it to North America and that they fanned out and made lives worked hard for and achieved social mobility, economic mobility, political integration into an America whose colonial history is baked into the very fact of its existence, you know, Canada and the United States and South America that you know, only exist by virtue of the fact of Europeans moving to these this hemisphere and making new lives for themselves. We've spoken, you know, just in the past few minutes in very broad terms about the idea that Jews were imagining Native Americans in, in different ways and that it represents important aspects, which we're going to continue to dive into about the place that Jews you know, had developed in America in the 19th century you know, and beyond. Can you maybe give us a concrete example of what you're thinking about when you look at the ways in which American Jews were imagining Native peoples and, as you said, trying to place themselves in sort of the mythology of America within which the imagined Native people was a part of as well. So what is going on here in practical or specific terms in terms of the ways in which American Jews were imagining Native peoples? One maybe practical, specific example is... Jewish memoirists or newspaper editorial writers, local history writers, uh, even letter writers, correspondences that discuss Jews' encounters with Native Americans in the West itself, and let's say the second half of the 19th century, where they write about Native Americans as being underproductive, of underutilizing the resources of the land, which is why they're there to, you know, exploit those opportunities uh, to make a living off the land and its resources, and kind of patting themselves on the back, either for figuring out how to make the land more productive, or for generating wealth 
through commercial exchange on that land and either claiming that they had done Native Americans a kind of service by teaching them some of the uh, sort of techniques of capitalism or insisting that their displacement of those Native Americans made sense on account of you know, the the need to make the land uh, productive. So you just see this in countless number of uh, sources, kind of ordinary sources from the time, newspapers, local histories, these kinds of things, obituaries. I mean, that sounds like it's part of a much broader rhetoric of white settlers in North America talking about their relationship with, you know, Native peoples. Is that different in terms of the way in which Native Americans were imagined, for instance, by non-Jews. And I I guess one other way to to think about this is that in what ways can we say that that the relationship between Jews and Native Americans was a different from the relationship between non-Jews and Native peoples? You know, and and how does this then like help us to understand the relationship between these three groups that we're talking about, Jews, Native Americans, and also non-Jewish white settlers? So is there a difference between how Jews related to Native peoples than the way that non-Jews did? And how does it help us to understand the emerging social economic matrix of of 19th century America and beyond? There are definitely some important differences. Jews differed from other white settlers in a couple of key ways. Uh, First is that they didn't missionize to Native Americans. Uh, They didn't try to convert uh, Indians into good Christians. And this impacted both the kind of community relations in the big picture, the Jewish church didn't participate in the administration of Indian affairs, as did the six largest Christian denominations after Indian affairs was moved out of the war department in the mid-1800s and into the hands of Christian denominations to administer Indian affairs. So there's kind of infrastructural or administrative connections that weren't made between Jews and Christian communities with Native Americans. So in a way, the ongoing relations between Jews and Native Americans are both less robust, but now a little bit less fraught. They have a less fraught legacy. And this lack of missionizing also impacted the face-to-face relationships that Jews with Native Americans when they did meet. The second major difference is that Jews tended not to sexualize Native American women because of the communal sort of insistence on endogamous marriage relations. Although I guess a little footnote here is that there's some really interesting counter-evidence to this. So kind of similar to the known phenomenon in the kind of modern Jewish world of, say, Portuguese Jewish women taking wives or, you know, legally recognized blended families with Black and Creole women in Jamaica or Jews who took kind of low-caste Muslim women as sexual partners in Iberian Christendom or Jewish men taking Slavic sexual partners, or, I don't know, concubines, I don't know what to call them, in the Ottoman Empire. This did happen, but when Jews subsequently wrote about kind of Jewish-Native relations, all of the sort of sexualization stuff disappears. And the sexualization stuff was important because it was one of the techniques that Americans as a whole deployed in order to integrate, to kind of assimilate the Indian, to make the Indian disappear so that America could be theirs. And this kind of sexual conquering was a really deep trope in American general white encounters that we don't see in the Jewish encounters. But I I also think it's really important to highlight some of the similarities between 
Jews and other whites' encounters with Native Americans, because there are probably more of them, and they helped do some other work for Jews and thinking about Jewish American life. Like these settlers were legally white. The state supported their ambition as settlers. You know, it state it, it supported their rights in court. They were able to get loans and credit like other whites. They had citizenship rights right away. Jews were not targets of state assimilation practices like there were against Native Americans. You know, there was no relocation or dislocation of Jews. They were not subject to sterilization campaigns or residential schools and on and on and on. So Jews may have differed from other whites in the ways that they brought meaning to this encounter, but they had all of the benefits of whiteness in all the ways that these other white settler populations were unlike Black Americans or indigenous people in the Americas. And those things are important to see clearly as well. How does that help us then to understand the developing place of Jews in America in the 19th century and so on? As you mentioned, you know, Jews are legally white people, right? You know, they're not enslaved. They're not native peoples. They're coming from European countries you know, for the most part. You know, so then how is it that the, that the encounter between Jews and native people as you mentioned, both similar and different to the way that other white settlers were encountering Native Americans. You know, how does this help us to, to better conceptualize the place of Jews in this developing society? Well, in the big picture, I think by paying attention to this relationship and seeing what Jews do with their interactions and how they're both similar and different from other you know, communities of you know, an agents of settler colonialism, it helps us see the Jewish story of immigration as a story of colonialism. And I think just doing that alone is not something that is de rigueur in thinking about American Jewish history, either from professional historians or other memory makers in, you know, collective public memory makers. So just doing that at all, I think, does something to American Jewish history. It recasts it, not just as a kind of story of ascendancy of, of economic mobility, of success, uh, and of integration, but of a larger process of movements of bodies and power across the continents in which Jews participate in, in seeing Jewish life and Jewish life in America as an outgrowth of those broader forces. So you just touched upon a huge issue. You know, I hope you can maybe say a bit more about it, which is that in this book and in this wider set of issues are essentially proposing that we should look at American Jewish history you know, in terms of the ways in which Jews were active participants in the settler colonial expansion you know, across the continent. So how is it that looking at American Jewish history in this way helps us to better understand America as a whole? How does it help us to look differently at American Jewish history and see it in a new perhaps more complicated and challenging light. I mean, I think it's best to understand American history, you know, on its original ground, more complicated and a little more challenging than just a story about a sort of pioneering experiment in religious freedom and in democratic governance, right? It, it simply, American history just simply has to contend with both the displacement of indigenous people and with slavery as facts baked into the original story. So I think America and Canada, I might add, might do a better job of coming to terms with these twin challenges about the origins of their societies and histories 
which of course have ongoing realities, ongoing lived realities, if we see smaller subpopulations, if small if Jews, for example, or you know, Mormons or Chinese or Italians, you know, eth- other ethnic and religious groups see themselves as connected to the history of slavery and the history of colonialism. So it's not like it's something that happened, you know, before my own immigrant grandparents came, so therefore it doesn't belong to my history. I think there's something woven in there. There's some service perhaps also done to American history for people to see them their own immigrant legacies uh, as linked to this larger one. But also, you know, we see American Jewish history as connected to these overarching push and pull forces that led to Europe's arrival in the entire Western Hemisphere, you know, and in the Southern Hemisphere. There are forces that, you know, pushed these great empires of the 17th and 18th centuries into everywhere that's outside of Europe, I suppose. And if we think about the demographic transformation of 19th and 20th century Jewish life of not quite an emptying out, but a massive transformation of Jewish life from Europe and Russia and parts of the Middle East and repopulated in the Americas and in Israel uh, and to some extent the South. You know, we see this stunning, stunning change. And what makes this possible? It's motility, it's expansion, it's the the need to build new societies in desirable lands and, and spread out from Europe that makes this all possible. And the I think it's important to see Jews as part of, you know, the the reason that there's Jewish life here and the the story of our Jewish histories in lots of these places as connected to that big process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. Part of what you're articulating here, we should be looking at American Jewish history, not just in terms of the ways in which the experience of Jews in the U.S. has been broadly positive, you know, for Jews, but the way in which the very existence of the kind of society where Jews have been able to flourish over the past you know, century you know, and more is built upon the settler colonial project itself in which Jews themselves participated as well. What does that do, right? I guess, like, why does it matter to kind of look at American Jewish history in this way? Well, I mean, it's not something that we're in the habit of doing. So first of all, it you know, it's a challenge. It's an intellectual challenge. And then it also might provide a kind of moral or political challenge that I didn't mean as a historian when I first set out to do the research. It was in a very different moment than the one that we're currently living in. So I didn't come to it with an activist agenda. But I think the book happened to come out and, and you know, sort of published a right time where this conversation suddenly is, you know, more politically and morally significant and fraught. So I wouldn't want to preach really how communities, synagogue communities, city urban communities, you know, what what they should be doing with it. But I, I can say that I've found a really surprising amount of interest among community leaders in thinking about how does knowing this story and being able to tie it to specific history, history with specific Jews who did specific things and not just the sort of the wide angle claim that I've presented so far to you. What do we do with it? And I think maybe, you know, in Canada, this conversation is is louder and is a little more forefronted, given that First Nations people in Canada are much larger minorities. So the kind of conversation around uh, reconciliation and nation-to-nation relations, settler-indigenous relations in Canada is really, it's in the popular press all the time. It's in 
the cultural and artistic sphere. It's it's a kind of national conversation, perhaps even larger than the conversation is in the States about Black lives. And there's a upshot to it, which is that I think it makes sense for communities that identified by scholars and political activists as settler communities, you know, who don't, wouldn't normally identify themselves as such. Nobody, you know, few people walk around saying, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a descendant of settlers, I'm a settler. But they think of themselves in kind of terms that are more organic to their own identities, be it religious or ethnic or something else. And I think if all of these sub-communities do some of that work of thinking through how is my, the community that I actually identify with, how does that story interact and intersect with stories, you know, with the histories of indigenous people on this continent, then our society as a whole may do a little bit better, a better job of, of thinking through what reconciliation looks like. Yeah, yeah. So I'm glad that you mentioned Canada. Obviously, you're based in Ontario, you know, in Toronto, you know, are involved also in, you know, the study of Canadian Jewish history. So to what extent is the story that you're telling about America that you focus on in this book, is this also playing out in Canada, you know, in similar ways? And also, as you've mentioned, you know, Canada also is, there's much more happening in Canada, especially over the past couple decades in terms of reconciliation and trying to make amends for, you know, you know, various wrongs that were done towards uh, the First Nations, to, towards the indigenous people relating to things like residential school systems and, you know, forced assimilation and, you know, so on and so forth. Does this kind of similar story of Jews and Native peoples that you talk about in America, does it play out, you know, in similar terms in Canada? And also, how is it that for yourself being in Canada helps you look at this set of issues you know, perhaps in a, in a unique fashion, being perhaps set, like distanced from some of the political discourse, which is ongoing in the U.S. Like you've mentioned, for instance, the challenges of looking at American history as being on a fundamental basis, not just about democracy, religious freedom, and so on and so forth, but also about colonialism and et cetera, et cetera, which is a really fraught issue, especially right now. Uh, you look at some of these debates about American history, which are ongoing in the press and, you know, political spheres, you know, and so on and so forth. So the fact that you're in Canada perhaps also gives you a different perspective because it's just a different place, you know, different, a different culture, a different discourse. So do you maybe want to say a bit more about sort of the Canadian angle to this history? There's both similarities and differences uh, between the situation of Jews in Canada and the United States in terms of uh, indigenous relations. In the big picture, they're similar. There are differences, I think, you know, there's a little less pressure on Canadians to conform to national myths, leaving kind of more Jewish room for Jews to sort of think through or behave, kind of act out their, their Jewish needs. And in the contemporary moment, as you rightly say, the, the discussion, uh, kind of extent to which the Indigenous discussion is part of public discourse in Canada is just much richer and more intense than it is in the United States. So I like thinking about this as a kind of continental history. When you drill down and do the specific details, they are different. Canada's Jewish population is, you know, newer to this country than it is to the United States. The West had already changed in a certain way at different moments. Um, Canadians were looking to Americans to develop policy um, with regards to Indigenous interactions. 
But there are also things that just don't happen in Canada, you know, because of volume and Jewish population in the States versus Canada and because of their longer standing earlier enfranchisement. For example, the, I was thought it was remarkable to discover a whole cadre of Jews in the Roosevelt administration during the New Deal uh, who worked at the Department of the Interior as lawyers and as civil servants who spent an enormous amount of energy uh, creating a new set of laws, of federal laws, uh, that completely turned you know, a century or almost a century of American assimilationist policies directed at Native Americans on their heads and supported a set, a robust set of policies that weren't quite like sovereigntist, but were much more pro-Indian, enshrined the rights for tribes to sue the federal government for, you know, treaty violations and for other damages, you know, stopped the practice of forced assimilation and allotment policies, did a lot of economic uplift, educational things. And there were really a shocking number of Jews who were overrepresented in this really incredible moment of more progressive Indian policy than had ever been seen. And these Jews continued their work outside of Capitol Hill when the administration uh, turned in, in the 40s to a more conservative federal government. But they were really active in promoting Native American rights. We, we don't see that in Canada until the late 60s. And this is a story that's, you know, happening in the States uh, as early as the 30s. So, you know, there, there are those kinds of differences on a, a more detailed level. But again, I would emphasize that, you know, in the macro picture, we should be seeing this as a similar thing. And I think we maybe even should be bringing some similar questions about Jewish, you know, economic and political and cultural leveraging of their own investments, asking about how colonialism shaped the conditions of their communal and individual lives in Australia, in Brazil, in South Africa, we may be part of a broader story. Now, I haven't done all the research for those those countries yet, and I would like to see more of it. Um, there's not that much scholarship out there, but you know, hopefully a conversation will come together that does some of this comparative work as well. One of the things that's interesting is we look to try to have you know, as you said, a continental approach to understanding, you know, Jewish history in North America uh, is, as you said, understanding that many of the similarities between the Jewish experience in, say, for instance, the U.S. and Canada is that these are both settler colonial societies. And some of the other examples that you just mentioned, Brazil, South Africa, Australia, you know, there are more that we could go through as well, also fall under the category of what we might talk about as settler colonialism. And I think that that's a really uh, interesting and fruitful way of tying together global Jewish history. And we can say more about that. But one of the things that, that I think is important for us to dwell upon, perhaps, is that many Jews outside the academy and also even many scholars, to some extent, are uncomfortable with the terminology of settler colonialism, because essentially many people are afraid that the terminology of settler colonialism will be applied to Israel. You know, and then, of course, there are a whole cohort of really important and leading scholars who have made a series of arguments about settler colonialism and the ways in which it applies to Israel and Palestine, the ways that it is different from European colonialism in terms of all sorts of different ways. But ultimately, my point is that, that many people are afraid of this terminology because they're afraid of its consequences. When you're looking at American Jewish history, Canadian Jewish history, and thinking about the ways in which 
we need to understand this historical experience through the lens of settler colonialism. You know, why is it so important for us to engage constructively with this idea? And why does it matter? And why is it significant for us to tackle head on the role of Jews in settler colonial societies, whether it's the US, Canada, you know, Australia, and so on, and colonialism more broadly, you know, when so many people are afraid of it? I think you're right that colonialism is a bad word, is a, is a scary word, is a dangerous word, and it's pretty politically fraught to talk about it. You know, this is a difficult conversation. I think that it does make some sense to disaggregate Israel and the question about colonialism and indigeneity from other places that where Jews sort of participated in and were, were subject to and agents of the British, Dutch, French, German, you know, Spanish and Portuguese empires. And those empires, they do have very significant differences when scholars compare them as imperial actors when they think about the state. I don't think we know enough about the differences or the similarities between how Jews acted in those different colonial frameworks. But I think it is heuristically useful to separate the Israel-Palestine conversation from the rest of these sort of Jews in colonial orbits conversation. I have, guess, two things to say. One is about Israel-Palestine and, you know, the advantages or disadvantages about thinking about this in language of colonialism, and the other is about kind of the rest of the world, even though I've only paid careful attention to the U.S. and to, to some extent Canada as well. First, I think I would say that it's not smart to see good guys and bad guys as historical actors. People live complex lives, and people should be understood in complex terms. There is undoubtedly a history of both victimhood and perpetration. Jewish history isn't a story of victimhood alone, and I obviously wouldn't argue that it's one of perpetrator history and oppressor history alone. I think those are just not good terms, moral terms, to understand uh, historical actors. But I think it's important to do the work of not thinking of colonialism as a dirty word, but as a descriptive word, not as a moral word, but as you know, as, as an empirical word, this is just part of the process that spread people out to all of these other new nation states, new states, new experiments in communal living that it just happened this way, that Jews ended up in Australia and in South Africa and in so many other places. As far as the colonialism question about Israel-Palestine, yes, it's, it's fraught and it's nervous. I like to frame this discussion as a kind of all-and discussion. Jewish history in Israel-Palestine may very well be colonial and post-colonial and anti-colonial, and there are really compelling arguments for all of them. But there's simply no doubt about the basic facts that Jews moved to Palestine, an imperial moment at first, you know, in the British Mandate period, from Russia and Central Europe and North Africa and the Middle East. You know, unless you want to say that they moved back to, not to, but back to. There are lots of claims about indigeneity in the land of Israel, in that land. Uh, and there are competitive claims, competitive rhetorical claims about who is indigenous to, to the place. And it could be that both Jews and Palestinians are indigenous to the, that place, or they're both meant to be on that land or should be allowed to stay on that land. I think it also could be the case that Jews are both colonists and indigenous, and that we may just have to have a, a subtler, more ambiguous reading of what happens. You know, just because 
we use the language of colonialism doesn't mean that everything is absolutely bankrupt and should be dismantled. I mean, you know, people don't really claim that Australia should disappear and that Canada should disappear and that, you know, the United States should disappear and Brazil should disappear because we have colonial histories and legacies. Neither, obviously, should we say that about Israel, even if we are willing to make the case for Israel as a colonial society, which I don't personally. I like to sort of do this. It's colonial. It's also anti-colonial. You can see how that works. And you can see how it's a post-colonial state, like many other peoples who experienced a kind of internal colonization and then set forth on a sovereignty project. They clearly share borders with all these. So let's make it all. First of all, I'll just say that I agree with pretty much all of what you just said, you know, especially that when we look at Israel and Palestine, that we can understand the history of the formation of the state of Israel, like you said, both in colonial terms and in terms of decolonization, right? Literally, it's formed through the breaking apart of the British Empire. But literally, the key issue is that understanding these issues surrounding colonialism or settler colonialism more specifically are really complicated, really difficult and challenging issues, both intellectually, also morally and politically. And I think that part of the reason why I brought it up is just because you're tackling these issues head on in your book, right? And in your broader thinking on these issues in terms of, as you said, understanding this not as a dangerous term, which I think that a lot of people in the public, you know, among the Jewish public, think of, quote, settler colonialism as a bad word, because as I said, they're afraid that it will be applied to Israel, even though perhaps it probably should. But instead of seeing it as dangerous and verboten and so on and so forth, to understand it as a useful framework for thinking about this question of what is the nature of these societies in places like North America you know, and elsewhere around the world, you know, perhaps also including Israel and Palestine, and what is the nature of those societies and what is the place that Jews have had in these histories and in these societies? By looking at this so directly, like what is the added value here of tackling head-on you know, this question of Jews and settler colonialism, broadly speaking? You know, why is this useful in terms of how we can better understand the past and also our place within our own societies? I like what you say here and how you frame the question, but you give me a little more credit than I deserve for, for tackling it dead on. Because in a way, I kind of end up at this place. And the project that I wanted to tackle was a curiosity experiment. I went on a, a massive fishing expedition when I started the research for this book, not in order to make a compelling argument about Jews as colonists and Jews and colonialism in the world, not at all. In fact, I had no idea that I was going to discover this. I went out seeking sources, evidence about times and places that Jews and Native Americans interacted, and then tried to make sense of it. And what I ended up arguing, which again was not part of the plan, and it certainly wasn't part of a, an agenda from the beginning, was that we can't understand these kinds of encounters between these two specific sets of peoples without thinking in the language of colonialism in some way. And then when I started thinking about it more, I was like, hey, you know what? This also might be you know, something that we can see only if and when we think about actual encounters between Jews and indigenous peoples from other places in the world. And as I say, that work hasn't been done in other places. And I think that's the work that historians ought to do and not rhetoricticians because at the end of the day, you know, these like isms and like words like colonialism or indigeneity are, they're, they're potentially rhetorical concepts and are used in rhetorical battles. I wanted to do an actual 
you know, an, an, a history of, you know, real people doing real things and not just playing with language for moral reasons. So the questions are really about how we use and what we may gain or lose in using this language uh, of colonialism. Right. And regardless of how your thinking on these issues has developed, you're, you're presenting a challenge to us as scholars and also to the broader public to rethink this history, you know, in as much as like, for instance, basically the way that American Jewish history is, is usually told both in public and also even by some historians is in some kind of a triumphalist or triumphant mode or key, you know, which is to say that people look at American Jewish history and say, look, you know, America has been a good place for Jews. American Jews have been broadly successful, you know, certainly better than it turned out in Europe, for instance. Uh, certainly, you know, scholars tend to qualify all of these things to provide a nuanced perspective and so on and so forth. But ultimately, there's still this undertone of this idea that America has been a place where Jews have made out well for themselves. But part of what you're doing here, and again, I'm not so sure it makes a difference in terms of whether or not you started out trying to make this argument or whether this is the conclusion that you came to, right, that you're showing that the success, quote unquote, of Jews in America, kind of like the success of white people, broadly speaking, is at the expense of somebody else. You know, and so I think that part of what you're doing here is not just complicating or making more nuanced our understanding of American Jewish history, but kind of turning some of the assumptions and some of the starting points that many people have had on their head. You know, so essentially like, you know, how how can we approach this kind of challenge? You know, understanding, for instance, that the success of Jews is at the expense of somebody else, in this case, Native peoples, as we look at the experience of Jews in North America and beyond that as well. Yeah, well, I'll own this. If, if the last question, you know, I kind of dodged by saying that's not what I intended from the first place, even though that's why what I argued in the end. I mean, this this I'll own, and I think you're very right about the tone. You know, 100 years ago, American Jewish historians, professional historians, popular memory makers, ordinary sort of reproducers of communal memory, and even the local context would use this triumphant tone very explicitly, and they would amplify it, right? This is really what it meant to sort of participate the immigrant success story, and specifically even in terms of Native American encounter, when you do see it in little scraps, no one might have focused on it then, but that would have also been pretty triumphalist as like Jews helped win the West. They helped wrestle the, you know, the wrestle the land away from, you know, wild Indians and from people who didn't deserve to be here. And they fought the wars and they sacrificed and they died in Indian wars. And, you know, they shed blood for this holy triumphant this holy H-O-L-Y and triumphant uh, capture of America. You know, since the 1960s, both of these conversations have certainly been more muted, muted in the sort of success story overall and muted in terms of the kind of war for the continent. But you're right that there is a kind of default tone still in the production of memory and history of American life that's still there. And I do mean to challenge that both, you know, pretty directly, but I don't think it needs to be entirely upended. In fact, I think we can and we should see Jewish success. It's there. We have to come to grips with it and understand it. We should just see it as a product of large processes and large structures and not just the byproduct of individual will or communal genius alone. And if we see it linked to these bigger processes that produced possibilities on the continent that we have, in a way, integrate 
Native American perspectives on this process, then we, we have no choice but to see the more fraught conditions that produced it and the consequences that people still continue to live, you know, most importantly, those who suffer from this process. Fundamentally, you are showing something about the dynamics of the way in which Jews wanted to be a part of America in different times, in different places, in different ways. You aren't just saying that Jews built their place in America on the backs of those who were persecuted, you know, in terms of the colonial and you know, slavery history of the United States, but you're saying something more complicated about this question of Jews and whiteness. So why is it so important for us to look at American Jewish history in all of its complexities, in all of its nuance on the one hand, but also to make this strong intervention, like you're saying here, kind of turning it on its head and giving us a new perspective at the same time? It's important to say a couple of things. One is that Jews connections to relationships with thinking about who they are with respect to both the kind of white Christian normative mainstream and the other others, Black Americans, Native Americans. Uh, there's a kind of triangulation that's constantly happening. And you're right that it it's different in different moments and in different places and for differently oriented Jews. So in the East, where there are not that many Native Americans around, Jews think about and do something different with Native Americans than in the West where they have face-to-face encounters with them. They're different when their needs are different. In the moment of anti-immigration anxiety, you know, Jews are thinking about indigeneity differently than they are, for example, in this earlier 19th century kind of moment when, you know, the lost tribes discourse is, is the thing that kind of structures and animates the conversation and connections to them. There is no consistent relationship. And that's definitely something that I wanted to highlight. And I was tempted when I was, you know, be really focused in on a a smaller scale. There's lots of history books that are written with, you know, just a few years or a couple decades that are really tied in on one dimension. And I felt that that would, it would really lose something by not seeing all the different changes that happen and the, the ways that Jews have their needs met through an articulation of their relationship with the natives that they encounter and or imagine. Uh, and that change is really, you know, the bread and butter of historians. That's what we study is change over time. And I think we want to do it in a nuanced way. We want to see, you know, history or the American Jewish story, in my particular case, you know, in as much rich complexity as possible, but still be able to say something other than, well, it's complicated. It's really complicated. You know, not all of the interactions, of course, between Jews and Native Americans was, you know, was exploitative or was, you know, was sort of bad. So there was lots of solid business connection in the long, interesting history of Jewish peddling and in the fur trade uh, and other places where Jews had pretty important, uh, you know, business connections that seemed to be mutually beneficial uh, or perhaps even better than non-Jews business relations with Native Americans times and places. You know, there is something about the overall framework of kind of extractive colonialism. And so when Jews acted as agents for businesses or for other settler communities or as salters, settlers who were people who supplied goods to the military, you know, then they were participating in more kind of aggressive settler colonial world. But there was also really places that were much more ambiguous, just kind of in the middle. And so I highlight the identity play of the of the Jewish merchants who bought and sold and traded Native American artifacts to 
you know, white audiences or a discussion about the anthropologists who lived with Native Americans, learned their languages, and then sort of wrote about their cultures and lives to white audiences. Like these were not exactly exploitative, but not exactly advocacy relations as well. So those kinds of relations were also complicated, like, you know, good and not so good and ambiguously playful uh, or politically ambiguous uh, in the middle. So I think you are showing some of the ways in which we can understand Jews as participating in multiple aspects of colonialism, as victims, as perpetrators, as beneficiaries, as people who in some instances had nothing to do with it, and so on and so forth. So like, what does it do for us to look at this set of issues in the context of the history of Jews and Native Americans to understand the bigger picture nuances of understanding how people can be on both sides of a conflict at the same time, whether we're looking at America, whether we're looking at issues in Israel and Palestine, elsewhere. We're really being quite limited if we approach this as a, a binary in the first place, either you suffer or you cause suffering. This is just not the nature of human experience. And anyone who has, you know, can think about their own personal relationships uh, and any fraught moments can understand that they are participant in a dynamic and not just victim or victimizer. And that I don't think it does us very good to to think in these kind of stark terms of oppressor or oppressed. So I, I want to try to avoid that language too. Uh, and I think it's good to do so with specific studies in mind. Now, one of the things that my study benefited from, and I think you know our listeners can probably easily relate to, is the question about Jews and Blacks in the 20th century and the 19th century. You know, yes, there are things to say about what's similar and different between Jews and Blacks and Native Americans and Jews. There's some question about Jews' location, some off-whiteness, some identity play, some room for making allyship and alliances, especially where it comes to rights. And we have a big, robust bookshelf about, you know, Black-Jewish relations, uh, and we just have nothing, you know, or very, very little on Native Americans and Jewish relations. So I suppose my hope in trying to provide some concrete history, a de detailed history, but also doing it from 30,000 feet, you know, trying to cover 100 years, uh, was meant to introduce and this conversation into one that already exists that, you know, grapples very well often in the Black Jewish history literature on how do we think about these more complicated relationships and can we provide space for you know, for more human ambiguity as it is. As we look to kind of take something away from the study of Jews and Native Americans, what does that teach us about the negotiation of this question of how Jews can be simultaneously victims of colonialism and beneficiaries of colonialism at the same exact time? How is it that, that looking at the specific instances of the relationship between Jews and Native Americans, both in practical real-life examples and also the ways in which Jews imagine Native Americans, which is really where we started this conversation, how does this help us to, to take lessons, task the broader goal of understanding Jews, for instance, and also other groups as being on multiple sides of a conflict as opposed to just on one side? The same thing can be said about Zionism in Israel. You know, uh, and we talked about colonialism there in that context. I think this is a broad project that we should be pursuing of, of understanding the 
the complexity, not just for its own sake to say, oh, everything is complex, but to have a better grasp on how conflicts, how colonialism, how societies work in the first place. It's doable. It's reasonable. It's maybe even politically and morally imperative to see beyond a binary of victim and victimizer, but to actually see people's lives in their political and moral complexity. So this just has to be a starting point for so many more conversations in the civic and communal realm and in the realm of scholars that, that, that we're not victims or victimizers, but we're, we're complex agents, you know, and agency is really the key word that certainly emerges from a lot of the scholarship on black lives and on indigenous lives that, you know, we don't want to only write about victim, but either it doesn't make sense to do that. There's lots of creativity and choices that are made, you know, within bounded limits and that there are complicated dynamics and that we have to actually unfurl what those dynamics are to see the richness of human lives and choices. And we shouldn't shy away from this kind of complexity of of both suffering and agency. I think that's just something that we can do and we really, we really need to do. I mean, I think that part of what you touched upon here and, and something that we discussed a little bit earlier as well has to do with the way in which certain terms and certain ideas are things that leaders within the Jewish community, for instance, either want to take on for themselves or avoid. Many Jews may want to avoid discussions of colonialism because they'll be afraid that it might apply to Israel. At the same time, there's also a rhetoric surrounding, as you mentioned, the terminology of indigeneity, right? You know, where this is, I think, a really important aspect of what's going on, where uh, many Jews articulate the sense that Jews are, for instance, indigenous, quote unquote, to the Middle East or to the land of Israel, you know, and, and this is also tied in with the issues of Jews seeking allyship with Native Americans. So what is at stake in terms of this rhetoric surrounding colonialism, surrounding indigeneity, surrounding settler colonialism within the Jewish community, for instance? And how is it that, that a deeper understanding of the history can help to inform these kinds of conversations which are happening in the public sphere? Yeah. On the one hand, there's a lot at stake because big narratives are important. That's not the world that I kind of circulate in. Part of me wants to say, look, nothing's at stake. This is totally rhetorical. This is not about a grounded set of, of facts. And even having a kind of debate, are Jews indigenous to the land of Israel or not, is not really a good scholarly question to ask. So you're right that there are community members that are asking it. But it's also the case, of course, that there are two sets of claims about indigeneity to that land, two sets of rhetoric, two sets of allies and two sets of efforts to flesh out allyship and perform it. If you look through the editorials of, you know, in Indian country, or in, like you'll find hundreds of bits of writing and blog posts and performances of various sorts, uh, both from pro-Israel and pro-Palestinian supporters making allyship connections in the language of indigeneity actually with Native American and First Nations uh, partners in Canada and the United States. So lots of Jewish organizations are, before the pandemic anyway, we're taking, you know, junkets of Native American women or leaders or environmentalists or artists to Israel and doing a kind of performance for the world about, you know, we share a kind of indigeneity. 
And of course, there's a massive body of this kind of rhetorical performance for Palestinians as well. So look, who will decide it is, of course, the question. Uh, and scholars may have a, a role to play in making arguments, but this is a kind of overarching narrative debate that we're seeing play out. And it's not clear if it will win, if it will resolve at all, which is why so many Jews are anxious about it. You know, what will it mean anyway? If you could decide such a thing, I don't know. Or perhaps at the end of the day, some people will say yes, and some people will say no. I think it could be, I think I said earlier that Jews and Palestinians could both be indigenous to that land, or they both could be meant to live there. And it could be that Jews are both indigenous and colonist. We're discussing some of the ways in which specific terminology matters, right? That it's important for us as scholars to engage with things like settler colonialism and indigeneity and so on and so forth in a nuanced and complicated way, but they're also being put to use in the public sphere. And the same thing is true about narratives as a whole, right? You know, we, we started out this conversation by thinking about some of the ways in which your research has offered a prompt to rethink the narrative of American Jewish history you know, through the lens of colonialism, as opposed to through the lens through the lens of economic success or political civil emancipation and so on and so forth. And I think that one of the really remarkable things, especially as we kind of start to wrap up our conversation, is that that you've kind of articulated here, and maybe I'm reading too much into what you're saying, but you've articulated that you just wanted to tell an interesting story, right? but you also are laying out almost an entirely new narrative of American Jewish history and also modern Jewish history at large, which is to say that at the end of the introduction, and you spend some time talking about it in the conclusion as well, you talk about how you have this tremendous migration of Jews in the course of the 19th century, the 20th centuries, to new regions of the world, Jews leaving primarily from Europe and going to places where there barely were even states in the 18th century. So here you've started off, off by thinking about America and perhaps Canada is part of that as well, but also now are including other settler colonial societies that we've discussed, like Australia, South Africa, you know, so on, but also Israel and Palestine, right? And a, a place where there you know, really wasn't a strong state. You know, there was the Ottoman Empire, but this is part of the building up of states in the course of the 20th century. And so you are kind of turning on our head our entire understanding of modern Jewish history by saying that you know, it's not even just about emancipation, right? It's really about the participation of Jews in global colonialism and state building around the world. So this is, I think, a really remarkable claim and really exciting, but it, it's kind of moving beyond the specifics of the history towards rethinking our entire narrative of modern Jewish history and modern Jewish experiences. So I guess all of this is just to say, as we're starting to conclude, is like, how is it that, that you get from this history of Jews and Native Americans in the U.S. to this broader reconceptualization of modern Jewish history? And why is it important to engage with this type of claim that you're making about how we can look at modern Jewish history in a new lens? The question does emerge from this specific study. You know, should we go there? How much traction will we get? Would we have to rethink other parts of, you know, modern Jewish histories that we've already come to assume we know. I think legal rights, you know, the sort of language of, of emancipation, they arise in situ and, you know, Central Europe and liberal Western European states that debate 
Jewish citizenship rights, like they happen in a very local context, as scholars have well shown. Uh, but there are other contexts where Jewish life is lived. So yes, they're the result of you know liberal leaders and debates, but Jews also just sort of traveled for work before gaining citizenship rights in Europe, and they often enjoyed those rights on on arrival in the colonies, uh, where they you know proved their worth to colonial governance, to colonial governments, and where the state you know supported their pursuits because they aligned with the ambitions of these colonial states. And because they just couldn't be bothered to police, you know, religion so strictly, it makes sense to follow the bodies, you know, to follow the people and where they go and follow people's efforts at making a living. Uh, this is not about state actors, colonialism as like state actors, but like of the people who populate the societies that move. So it's about capital and globalization and settlement which fuels these mega processes of Jewish relocations and the creations of new Jewish communities. And if we take looking at like how those things happen and their impact and their relationships with the other people who are necessarily part of that process, then maybe we can pay less emphasis to the kind of political debates about citizenship rights and emancipation and, and see some of the forces that make Jewish modernity possible in a almost a more mundane way, but I think it might shift some of our sort of bedrock intellectual assumptions of what we choose to study in the first place. This kind of argument is really posing a, a question and a challenge for us, both in terms of our scholarly work and also the the broader telling of Jewish history, which is what is the the frame or the framework through which we see the developments that are happening in terms of modern Jewish history. There have been a whole series of narratives that people have presented over the course of you know, the past two centuries or more, right? If you pick up, you know, the Jew in the modern world, the source book, right? In many ways, it's very much framed around the issues of emancipation of Jews in Europe. Also, of course, there's the framework of nationalism, right? The sense that modern Jewish history is connected with the involvement of Jews, both in terms of Jewish nationalism and also the local nationalist movements of wherever place that they happen to be in, you know, and there's, there's much more beyond that, right? Is modern Jewish history a story of, you know, persecution and at the rise of anti-Semitism culminating in the Holocaust? I mean, I would argue that that's much too simplistic, but many people see it that way. You know, there's much more, and you're presenting a new frame of thinking about how we look at these phenomena as well. And I think it's very exciting to kind of take a, a fairly specific study and think about the big picture that we could take away from it. Thank you so much, Jason. I mean, I, I don't know if you have any kind of final comments or thoughts. I mean, like, like what is it that we, whether we're talking about in terms of scholarship or the broader public discourse on Jewish history and why it matters and why is it so significant or important for us to look at things from this angle or from this perspective? Well, you know, I'm slightly more tentative but hopeful. I mean, I would love to be part of more conversations um, that do more comparative work that uh, maybe downplay some of the exceptionalism of American history, of American Jewish history, of sort of thinking that it's it's the only story to tell and, you know, find more colleagues and conversations and do more research myself and hopefully do, you know, more collaborative work where we can, you know, think through some of the social history and then the political implications that arise from the social history instead of starting with the politics. 
you know, it's just a great thing that, you know, as a historian, there are new questions that you can ask about the same past. And this is one of the wonderful things about the study of history is that the questions change and the kinds of sources that change and what we're seeking out from the sources change. And therefore, our, our understanding of the past changes uh, as we go. So I'm certainly eager to pay attention to if and how these changes unfold in the future. You're talking about historiographical change, right? You know, how we ask new questions about the past, have new perspectives, but why is it that this particular perspective matters to think about whether that's American Jewish history or Jewish history, broadly speaking, as part of the story of colonialism? Why does it matter to ask that kind of question and look at these issues through this particular kind of lens? I think it matters because the impacts of colonialism on indigenous people around the world has been very significant and it's underwritten. And the ways that we're interconnected and that our successes and our sufferings are interconnected are just important things to see. And I think it's for the benefit of, you know, humanity, if I could be so broad, that, you know, that we all get taken forward, you know, and that all of our stories and all of our sufferings and all of the complexity of our lives are understood together as part of a rich and, you know, miserable and complicated and fascinating story of human agency. And so I think we have to sort of move forward with the, the voices of Indigenous people, even in Jewish history, and of other people who have been, been voiceless through much of it. Thank you so much. This has been a really fascinating conversation. I'm glad that we had a chance to talk about your book and the issues related to it. I'm uh, really pleased that you invited me, and it was really fun talking with you. And thanks for listening to our conversation with David Kaufman. Until next time, I'm Jason Lustig, and this is Jewish History Matters.